0: This podcast is brought to you by Rode Microphones, providing premium audio products at an accessible price, enabling people from around the world to achieve their creative goals. With mics for studio, video recording, and podcasting, you're bound to find the mic you need. To find out more, visit Rode.com. Hello, and welcome to the Soundworks Collection Interview Series. My name is Michael Coleman. And this week we're featuring a special event hosted by Piermin Studios based in San Francisco, who hosted a panel on VR sound design. This panel was moderated by CEO and Creative Director of Piermin, Greg Gordon. And on this panel, we had Sharosh Kuwaja from Subpack, Kevin Boland from Skywalker Sound, David Grunswig from Diasonics, and Brennan Anderson from Piermin.
1: So just a, a couple of things before I get into the panel part here. Uh, Varun Nair, uh, last minute, very sorry he couldn't be here tonight. Um, but we are very fortunate to have Sarosh here from Subpack, who jumped in on the panel last minute, which is great. We've had Subpack here on several panels before, so it's great to get um, a, a different perspective from uh, uh So we do have Kevin Boland from Skywalker, Brendan Anderson, uh, and then to my left here, David, uh, with Dysonics. Uh, you might have noticed over there, there's this big bulbous thing standing up on that stand over there. <laughs> <laughs> that is uh, the Dysonics Rondo mic. Uh, so Dave's going to talk a little bit about that. And he'll talk about the, the the demo that we have set up in there. We also have an ambisonic mic directly next to it. So you, what you see there is an ambisonic mic on the left and a binaural mic on the right. But it's a binaural 360 mic right, with eight telefunken capsules on it. So it's uh, really, really cool, Um, and you'll be able to go, you can go into, after we're done tonight, you'll be able to go into that control room and check out both of those mics on headphones with the spatializing software plugins on them just to see how they respond and what it's like to listen to them with the head tracking on. Okay, so tonight, um, it's, uh, you know, I just did a panel a couple of weeks ago uh, at the AES show in L.A., and uh, it was really, it's really interesting because that panel was all about VR, sound, implementation, and mixing for games, right? Now, doing VR implementation and sound for games is different than doing VR, sound, and implementation for cinematics, which is what we're going to be talking about tonight. So I took a lot of the content that I had from that presentation, but kind of flipped it around a little bit to really make it relevant to filmmakers. So how many of you here tonight are filmmakers? Great. And how many of you have already begun making 360 or VR cinematic? Great. All right. So it's a real interesting mix of folks. And so for those of you who aren't filmmakers, for those of you who aren't sound designers, do we have composers in the room? Aha, uh-huh, I knew it. <laughs> awesome. So it's a great mix of folks here tonight, and, and that's that's good because that, it helps us understand also um, how to kind of gauge our conversation, and of course these questions will help too. So creating and mixing music and sound for cinematic VR, also known as 360 film, raises a lot of technical and artistic questions, and hopefully we'll be able to address some of those with you guys here tonight. There's no one correct way to go about this, just as there's a lot of tools now that can achieve the same or similar results. Um, I know because uh, just going to AES a couple of weeks ago, they had a whole um, VR, AR section of the show, and it was kind of overwhelming to see all the new Spatializer plugins, all the different mics that are being created for this. Um, so there's definitely a lot of buzz in, in this space, and a lot of different workflows that have been created to uh, act as plugins uh, in your DAW software so that you can sync up to 360 film and begin and implement and create spatialized sound design. Um, so this panel is going to explore both the variable aesthetics at play as well as discuss some of the latest platform hardware and plugin developments being used. Um, topics of discussion hopefully will range from use of ambisonic and binaural spatialized audio to non-spatialized audio placement Appropriate soundscapes and ambiences and I'm going through this just so I can trigger these thoughts in your mind as you think about what's relevant to you so you know other things like room and environmental effects, head tracking integration, ambisonic encoding and decoding, suitable volume levels for long term listening because all of this is designed for headphones for the most part which is kind of an interesting change. So uh, then the concept of diegetic and non-diegetic uses of music and effects such as occlusion through filtering, equalization, distortion. So we'll try to touch on a lot of these uh, topics at least as much as possible. And I, like I said, we'll we'll try to gauge and shift to your questions. So what I'd like to do just to begin with is let each one of our panelists just speak briefly to what they do specifically in this space, maybe some of the projects or hardware software that they work with. Um, so why don't we start on this end with you, Dave?
2: Great. So I'm David Gruszwe. I work at Dysonics and Dysonics as a company. We focus on making tools and technologies for people in the 360 audio space. So, As we said earlier, there's our microphone in the back, but we're also excited about showing you guys some other products that we're doing as well. Um, For Dysonics, I specifically focus on DSP development, so I work on the back end on designing all of our algorithms for how we do reverb, how we sort of take advantage of perception to fool your brain into thinking that you're hearing things coming from different directions. All that stuff is of interest to me, and that's what I focus on at work. Um, I have a background in, a little bit of background in mixing and, and working in a studio as well, so... Uh, love audio. Love that there's so many composers here as well as filmmakers. So, yeah, great. Thanks, Dave. Uh, Kevin, how about you?
3: So I'm Kevin Bolin. I'm an audio designer and mixer at Skywalker Sound. I've been working on feature films for a few years, uh, but two years ago I started specializing specifically on audio for immersive and interactive media. So that includes VR, but it's also things like mixed reality, video games, anything non-cinema and television. Um, so I have a, I'm a very unique unicorn in the big world of Skywalker and Disney
4: and Lucasfilm, so.
1: Great, thanks. Srosh?
4: I'm Srosh from Subpack. We make this uh, device that lets you field bass and music. We started off with, as a tool for music producers to Mix and monitor base, but what we've been finding out, and what people have been finding out is that a big problem in VR is that your visual system is tricked, your hearing is tricked with binaural audio, but your body is still not there. and what sub sub pack really allows you to connect to any uh, any uh, uh, VR experience you feel like you're there. I'm Brennan. I am the senior audio
5: producer here at Pyramind, um, and I focus primarily on uh, music, uh, sound design, and, and implementation in games, and recently we've been doing a lot of cool VR stuff. So um, I have a little bit of background of VR back from Disney, but um, so I'm able to put it into use here, which is turning out really fun, and I love it.
1: Yeah, not to mention Unity programming, which is also very handy when doing games. Um, So I I just want to start with a little quote that I like a lot, just to get your minds thinking a little bit. This is something I I picked up uh, a little while ago. And um, it says, audio from an evolutionary perspective is the thing that makes you turn your head quickly when you hear a twig snap behind you. It's very common that people put on the headset and don't even realize they can look around. You need techniques to nudge people to look where you want them to look. Uh, And sound is the thing that has nudged us as humans as we've evolved. So this kind of sets up the challenge, and the challenge is maintaining the cues that the brain needs to localize the sound so the illusion remains intact. The human ears pick up audio in three dimensions. The brain processes multiple cues to spatialize that sound. One of the most basic indicators is proximity. The ear closer to the sound source picks up sound waves before the other. There's a gap in the time that it takes to travel from one ear to the other, and the distance also changes the audio levels. So together, these differences help the brain pinpoint the exact source of the sound. So what I want that to do for you is to kind of set up a couple of term definitions that I want our panelists to just riff on a little bit here. And of course, the first most important one here is the concept of HRTF, also known as head-related transfer function, which works with a VR device's head tracking tech to calculate when a user's head, where a user's head is and how that would affect the sounds that they're hearing. So the other two really important ones to distinguish, and you know examples of those two, like we said earlier, are right in the back of the room, is the concept of binaural versus ambisonic. So maybe just to begin with, um, I think maybe David, you could just tell us a little bit about the binaural mic you have and why that's so relevant and important to VR 360 cinematics.
2: Great. So as we had kind of discussed earlier, the main platform on which VR audio is experienced is headphones. Um, Pretty much everything right now is focused on that headphone market. And binaural basically refers to audio that has been created specifically to mimic the way that your ears hear audio in real life. So you're listening to it back over headphones ideally so that there's no interference from any other sources or any other sound between the sound that's coming out of the speaker and hitting your ear and we can use a lot of different information. Um, All all the things just listed, things like time differences between hitting each ear, level differences, and some other cues relating to the shape of your ear and things of that nature. And all that's basically baked down into an audio file, and what you get is a, a audio experience that mimics what you're hearing in the real world, so that if something is recorded as being behind you, then you can experience hearing it behind you based on the way that it's supposed to hit your ears. So our microphone takes advantage of that, uh, that principle, but then expands on it because binaural is is fixed. You're looking in a specific direction, and what we do is basically allow you to take binaural content and turn your head and look around, which is a very important component of 360 video. 360 video wouldn't be 360 video without looking around, and so we figured audio needed to follow suit.
1: Great. Now there next to it is the Ambisonic uh, sound field mic. Um, so. Kevin, you want to maybe just riff a little bit on the importance of ambisonic and the difference between ambisonic sound versus binaural?
3: Sure. So uh, for any of you audio people out there, how many of you are familiar with MS or midside encoding? So to make a broad, possibly grossly inaccurate generalization, we're going to talk about ambisonic sound fields as a multiple midside microphone array. So we're taking multiple capsules of microphones, We're capturing several channels of audio. And then based on your head rotation at playback, we're going to mix those channels of audio in such a way that we can capture a 3D sound field. So I'm not talking about a microphone that's pointed in any specific direction. I'm talking about several microphones that are essentially pointed in every direction simultaneously. So that requires some decoding on playback. But the idea is that we've captured a sphere that represents the space that you're in and everything that happens in it. Um, what's interesting about that is, like an omnidirectional microphone, that means that there is no specific directionality. Anything that happened in that sound field will be decoded when you play that file back. What's interesting about these, you know, quad, binaural, and some of the others, more directional but 360 mixes, is that we can actually dictate the content specifically towards the direction that you're looking on the playback. So that's what we've actually been exploring on the sort of content side, is creatively how do we use these recordings. So there are some differences between ambisonics and 360 binaural recorded microphones, both in the types of content that you might want to capture and the types of playback experiences that you might want to have based on your your experience.
1: Great. And, and there's actually a relevant question up here on the board about this.
3: How often do you find yourself using
1: ambisonic tracks for more than just ambience? And anybody's welcome to join in on, on any of these questions, by the way. I mean, I know, I know for a fact that we've been using them. We've been actually going out into the field and capturing um, ambisonic recordings of all kinds of different ambiences. And one of the cool things about that is when, you, if you look at the capsule of that microphone, there, there's four capsules on it, right? And so you're getting height uh, definition with that mic, and you're getting with, uh, uh, exp- you're getting the width and the height on that. So down below, up above, left and right, um, in all four different directions. So it does make for really, really cool ambience uh, recording, and you can then use a uh, software plugin specifically on that mic to then also convert that to 5.1 and 7.1 formats. Yeah, you had a question? Oh, you're jumping ahead. You're jumping ahead. <laughs> no, it's fine. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, since you brought that up, let's, let's just talk about it for a moment. The challenges of location sound when you're doing a VR film shoot, right? Because we've got a 360 camera here that's picking up everything. Where do you put the mics, right? What do you do when, you know, how, how do you actually mic that kind of an environment where a boom mic isn't gonna work? Um, and there was a lot of discussion at AES about this. Anybody here want to touch on this? Want to riff on this at all?
3: Yeah, well, anyone in the audience, who has done any field recording or production audio where you've recorded something that you couldn't use later? Oh, yeah. So, hi, I'm from the post world, and we get lots of recordings that, for whatever reason, we decide that we can't use. One of the cool things about ambisonic recordings is that it's malleable in post. We have multiple channels of audio that we can manipulate to try to extract something usable that's kind of an interesting aspect that we haven't had in sort of traditional mono spot mics before, or even some of the multi-channel surround mics. And the cool thing about Amazonics uh, is that we can re-render it to multiple channel formats. So we can re-render to a stereo, a 5.1, a 7.1, a 9.1 bed if we're mixing in Dolby Atmos. We can use a virtual shotgun emulation to extract a specific sound and treat that like an individual mono source object and pan that around later. That's way more useful in post than if we got a spot mic that was set on the stage somewhere that was obstructed by something or, you know, was too far away. Uh, so being malleable in post is of huge value to us. Uh, and, you know, you can get something as cheap as like the the zoom recorders that do a, a faux ambisonic uh, recording, you know? Uh, so I think all this technology is relatively approachable and we're, You know, we're exploring technologies that expand the opportunities of what we can do creatively after the fact so you don't commit to a recording that maybe isn't useful later. So, I mean, I hope that's of benefit for anyone who's ever recorded something that they couldn't actually utilize in the way they thought it would be useful later.
1: Right, and you can't underemphasize the need for wireless labs. Mono, source point, wireless lab, well hidden, tucked away so that you can actually capture... The voice is going to be critical. I've done. I've been on a couple of shoots now, and that was the most critical piece to capture, um, especially the dialogue components of, of a um, live shoot. Um, so that being said, actually, that kind of brings up an interesting point because we've talked about ambisonic. Now we've talked about um, the uh, binaural configuration of a mic, and we've kind of roughly addressed the basic terminology of those two. So. When is stereo still a viable option, or should all sound sources be mono? Because now you, because you got to really think about this, right? Does stereo still work? And uh, it, we're in a head-tracked environment, so things are staying where they suppose, where they're supposed to, hopefully, right? So, at what point um, is stereo still a, a viable format in uh, VR film? You want to talk about that, Brendan?
5: I think uh, one, one place where stereo still works really well is well, stereo has a lot of width to it in the recordings. So actually spatializing stereo sources so that they have more width in the 3D sound field uh, can be really useful. It, it basically comes down to it's actually two mono sources, but the recording just has more width inherently in it. So it's a little more useful um that's one for sound design Uh, I mean obviously still for music um, though I guess some would argue that with VR audio um, music and stereo work sometimes um, but it's a lot more effective if it's actually diegetic or part of the world Um, or that's that's a creative the other
1: piece is it could be headlocked it doesn't Mm -hmm. move right Because when the the music starts to move as you turn your head, that just seems strange, Mm. right? But if that stereo image is just going to stay where it is, then I think the cue of it being a soundtrack really registers with the the listener or the observer. So I've noticed that that, that's really a powerful tool there for a stereo image.
3: Yeah, our minimum viable implementation for non-diegetic score is headlocked stereo. Um, if we ever had to collapse something down to mono and this is a particular challenge with ambisonics if we want something that doesn't rotate with your orientation like we want something that exists outside of the sound field be it voiceover or music we have a challenge externalizing it in an ambisonic sound field versus what happens is it sounds like it is inside your head and that's fine but when you have a really nice Nicely rendered, very granular, you know, sound effects and diagenic dialogue, you know, mix that you've created, and then you stick a score in the middle of someone's head. It sort of collapses everything. Um, so minimally, uh, we would love to have to maintain stereo music that stays locked to the head. Um, beyond that, we love to, the ability to externalize things and have the score exist sort of outside of the space that you're in. Um, But once we start collapsing the sound field and making you perceive things as if it's coming from between your ears, we're in a really sort of risky area in terms of collapsing the entire sound field and really distracting from whatever spatial audio that you might have going on. So stereo still has immense value right now, especially for music.
1: So let's talk about mono for a second, because uh, so much of this is based on positioning of a mono sound source and actually moving it um, within the tool set. And in this case, so because, you know, Dave, you're sitting to my left here, talk about uh, a little bit about the tool set that uh, Dysonic has created for production and for the manipulation of spatialized sound. Um, it, it's the Rondo 360 processing tool, right? So talk about that a little bit.
2: Yeah, so this is kind of an interesting conversation point about mono versus stereo versus any other format that you might have. So early on, before we were even in the VR space, we were focused on taking um, sound, various sound systems and arrangements and spatializing them for headphones so that we could simulate something like listening to a 5.1 system in your room over headphones or a 7.1 or any other system. And so when we get faced with, a user that wants to use stereo, say they did some field recordings or some site recordings with a stereo task cam or something of that nature, we treat it like like a artificial speaker system sitting in front of you. So, and that might seem kind of nonsensical, but when you think about stereo, you actually we are talking about a sound field. Interesting enough, uh, we're all so used to that concept that we don't think of it as a 3D sound like field anymore. But in nature by not being a mono system we do have some varying degrees of placement of a sound source um, so that's why we have to treat it like a field the same way we might treat Amazonics like a field and not just treat it like a point source so when we when we get mono audio that is great because it allows you to very precisely pinpoint where it is but when you're dealing with uh, people that maybe have pre-recorded 5.1 you start to have some more difficulties and, and questions come up for the creator on on what they're going to do with that so um my recommendation is, is to go with mono, especially if you're planning on having multiple different sources and creating a, a complex field. Um, but we also understand the need and the realism of having a sort of complete field recording, like something from an Amazonics mic or even from our uh, MTV motion track normal microphone.
1: So speaking of complex fields, um, how many sounds is too complex? I mean, what, what is it in terms of what a listener can really adapt to and, and really spatialize and manage in, with their brain and their ears. How many sounds you think is, is really you know, enough to convince and, and make it believable for the listener?
2: Yeah, this, this this sort of um, transitions almost into more an artistic question of uh, of of how at, at what point do we hit so real that it's not good anymore? I mean, we're dealing when we when we exist in the real world, our brain does a great job of perceiving the noise that we want to focus on, and we tend to not hear everything else. Like most of us are not noticing the air conditioner right now and things of that nature. And when you capture that and hear it back on recording, it's a very different experience than being there. Your sort of your focus is more. Um, Diffused than it than it would be in a real situation. So when it comes to how many sounds are are good it, It's sort of a hard question to put an uh, put a number on but um, Yeah, I, I think definitely working with room tone. Um, I think a lot of the the sort of existing mixing um, practices and and the concepts of how many is too many will transfer over. Um, I can't speak specifically to that because I I think that's probably a better thing for somebody who's doing 360 mixing to answer. But um, I did find that when I first first came onto the company, what really sold me about the technology is that having worked in in stereo for so long, the ability, when you transition to having spatialized audio, the brain's ability to pinpoint each individual thing and then focus in on it is a lot better. So when listening to music that's spatialized like that, what you end up getting is a much better experience because you can focus in better. It's sort of like the most complex panning you've ever worked on. You know, when you sort of hit the point where you have two items in the same frequency range and they're hitting each other and you can do something with spatialization to get it so that it's clear and the brain can focus on each thing. So it gave, to me, it gave so much better of a listening experience because I could focus on each thing in the scene uh, with a lot more clarity than I could with a stereo mix.
1: Kevin, what what do you think in terms of number of sounds that you're spatializing and are firing off at any given time?
3: Two and a half. No, No, that's a joke. Um, So when I started at Skywalker Sound five years ago, we used to do a lot of 5-1 mixes, some 7-1 mixes. Right now we're hanging more channels on our recorders than we used to hang as source material. So we're taking more source elements from production dialogue and design tracks than we ever used to render you know, down to. It's 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 a sheer ridiculous number of content because we want to be prepared for every artistic nuance, but we want to have the option of choosing which are the important things. And ultimately, that's going to come down to your narrative design. And the the coolest thing about some of the experiences that we're seeing now is that we're bridging the ga- the gap between the purely interactive experience and the purely linear experience. And so what you know, we typically think of in the rendered experience is, well, we can mix things in the sort of volume domain and the frequency domain, and we can make sure that things don't overlap and we know what's important in the mix. The nice thing about a really elegant narrative design is you're giving us the ability to mix in a time domain. And so you're choosing at which point certain events in the sonic space happen. And so that's actually really important when we're thinking about composing for VR. Because you're thinking about an entire immersive sound field, we're not talking about a very specific field of view or a a very specific field of audition. You can have visual and audio stimulus come from absolutely any direction. And especially for first time VR users, that's like automatic, like cognitive overload people are overwhelmed. So if you can construct narratives in such a way that you guide people using video, visual cues, or sound through very specific moments, you can give them narrative moments in a very immersive space. And so what we want to avoid is everything happening all the time from every direction. And I know a lot of you think, oh, 360 is amazing. Someone is looking over here and they're gonna hear something and it's gonna cause them to turn around. If it's their first time in VR, that trick probably doesn't work. They're so overwhelmed, they're probably tuning out the sound just to focus on what they're absorbing visually. We love to give people audio cues and we will do it all day, but it works best if we can totally synergize with the visuals. So think about constructing your narratives in such a way that you're guiding people through this entire immersive sound field and you're causing them to turn around and notice interesting things visually and audibly giving them space to explore but if you put them in the middle of a battlefield you can't expect that they're going to look in any direction more likely than any other direction because you're giving them spectacles all around them so really like choose where your sort of spectacles happen but space them out in a way that you can't do in a sort of 2D previously rendered media so i mean like pick your moments you can have too many moments and sometimes it's more than two sometimes the threshold is really low especially in these new platforms where people haven't figured out how to absorb it absorb it yet yeah
5: i think um part of it is that uh we're not trying to as you know as storytellers we're not trying to be incredibly super realistic uh so that you're fooled into thinking that you're in somewhere exactly where it is has been recorded and stuff like that we are telling stories and i think the main point of telling stories is to sell the fiction and to be fantastical and to do whatever it takes to make the you know experience give you some sort of an emotional response and so you know if in real life you would have you know sounds all around you and stuff like that well that's not super helpful if your narrative and your story is supposed to be driving your, your vision and your, uh, your hearing in one smooth direction um, to convey something.
1: So we, we've got a lot of different sources of sound here. We've got binaural, we've got ambisonic, we've got stereo, we've got mono. Can, how, can these, all these formats be mixed together to achieve the necessary amounts of diffusion while still making it easier for the listener to localize the sound? Because this is a big challenge. You're recreating an environment, right? And you have all of these different tools now to do this. And of course, we haven't even talked about reverb, or the re- recreation of reverberation, which is a big indicator of your spatialization. But how, how is it that we then begin to mix these different formats together to really create the illusion? Anybody want to tackle that, Kevin? You're kind of on that, right? Okay.
3: Yeah. Creating illusions. That's what we do every day. Um, to touch on you know, sort of the, the previous point, a lot of us think of, especially when the live action 360 video, we think about this idea of like immersive realism. Realism isn't the key word. It's authenticity. It's what we've been doing in video games and film for many years is we create an expectation of what is an authentic experience, for what you're experiencing. So, what we do in post production, we create a, an absolute fiction, and you have a suspension of disbelief, and you buy into that fiction forever, you know, for whatever given period of time. So, the technology that we use, I think, really has to focus on the strong points of the content that we're conveying and the platform that we're conveying it on. Something that we've been doing in film sound for many years is. In all of our design and mix environments, we're trying to emulate what the end user is going to experience when they play back this, this piece of narrative media. We have to do the same thing in VR. You know, If you're shipping a, a, a game or a 360 video that's shipping on the Gear VR, you should be, during the design process, as close to that playback experience as you can, especially in terms of audio, in terms of the audio re-rendering and the, the headphones that you're using So it's all about convincing the user that they're having an authentic experience. One of the nice things about these pre-rendered binaural formats is that we can have very artistic and subjectively creative mixes based on user orientation that we can't have with an ambisonic sound field where sort of everything has to be represented simultaneously. And this is something that we've been leveraging heavily in some of our mobile VR experiences is that what you hear when you're facing forward in the 360 perspective is not the same thing that you're hearing when you're facing in the opposite direction, but just filtered differently. What we're deciding subjectively, artistically at every given moment is where you're looking, what are those important things? What should you hear? What are things that we want you to ignore? And those are things that we we can adjust when we have the ability to have sort of multiple rendered artistic mixes. So really, in order to deliver the ideal level of authenticity, we want to think about what is the artistic mix, not just the technical mix that is required to deliver for any given format. So you really have to look at what your content is, what the platform you're delivering on, and how do you trick the user into feeling like they're having an, a, an authentic experience.
1: So that being said, I'm going to take one of these questions here. How does monitoring work for VR to a big facility like Skywalker? Do you still mix on headphones or an Atmos type setup?
3: If we're producing an experience for speakers, we listen on speakers. If we're producing an experience on headphones, we mix on headphones. Our very first in-engine room scale interactive VR experience was actually pitched as an in-speaker experience. So throughout the entire development experience, we developed on a 5.1 system. I don't know that any other VR experience has been developed in that way. Every other experience that we've worked on, mobile you know, 360 video experiences are designed to ship on mobile platforms where the expectation is that we're listening on headphones, we monitor on headphones. That being said, the very first 360 video experience that we delivered for the Star Wars app, we actually authored it in such a way that you get the perception of a custom spatial audio mix even if you don't plug your headphones in. So the Unity developer that we worked with, we delivered them a pre-rendered multi-channel mix uh, which is essentially a 3D immersive theatrical mix. And during runtime, they're actually looking at the user perspective and crossfading between both the horizontal and vertical planes. So coming that? from the game's world, I don't know. How many of you have played a mobile game and like not plugged your headphones in or turned off the sound on your phone? Yeah, most mobile gamers are never going to listen to the audio, but... Man, if they do and they don't plug in their headphones, like I want it to sound cool and I want it to sound like it's changing based on the way they're rotating their phone. So we asked for a totally unique custom Unity implementation and they did the math to figure out how to make that happen. And, you know, we were able to take something that was literally mixed like on speakers on a dub stage at Skywalker and translate that to a mobile phone where even if you don't plug in your headphones, like it actually changes with rotation, which... At the time was totally novel. So, you know, there are ways that you can think about it where it's all it's gotta be based on the end user experience. And if you're concerned that your user is only gonna be using a certain type of headphones, mix on those headphones. If you're shipping specifically for Rift or specifically for Vive, check your mix on the headphones that ship with that platform. Like you just have to know how it's gonna translate, but it's always gotta be based on the audience and the user perspective.
1: Yeah, there there's a lot of questions we could get into around headphones and I'm gonna save those for a, a little a little bit later. Um Sarosh, I know um, you know, the sub pack was originally designed as a mixing tool for musicians, right? So um how do you see it being applied in this in this case to VR and and in both on the mix stage and at the final user um performance
4: level? This kind of ties together the last three questions the question about mono, the question about uh, the question about uh, how all these different standards come together. And if you look at five one seven one and all the standards going around, uh, bass is still mono uh, because bass frequencies are low frequencies. that have longer wavelength, and they encompass you. They're all around you. So, yeah, he's working. Uh, we've been working on uh, directional bass in our own ways, but uh, for the time being, bass is mono and it adds a real sense of immersion. Uh, so all the complex things about binaural and spatial, all that doesn't apply to bass, so that makes your life simpler. But in terms of mixing, um, as uh, he pointed out, you don't hear the air conditioner sound right now, or you're, you're blocking it out, or uh, the sound of that projector. Sorry for pointing that out. Um, uh All that will be in in recording from those mics, but if you're using the sub-pack for mixing and mastering, you can cut out all uh, all, all those extra environmental sounds that you don't want to be there, or you can use it to add those sounds to add some sense of realism if people want to focus that if it's in the mix.
1: Great, so I'm gonna take another question here, uh, one at the top. Uh, somebody's asking, what are some of the key sound design differences between VR cinematics versus VR in games? So, Brennan, maybe you want to start with the game side. You want to talk about that?
5: Well, the game side's a little tricky because you don't know exactly what's going to happen, where and when. Um, so you ha- that's why you have to have solutions like the spatial plugins and stuff that track keep track of your head movement and where all the audio objects are. And that's pretty much what we've been doing in 3D games for a long time. Um where it gets interesting is um, uh, you know, in VR film you really can take control of the narrative. And it's similar like in games if you have cutscenes or something like that um or scripted events, but you can really take control of the micromanaging the narrative in VR film. Um, where if you want to us to pay attention to a fly buzzing around your head, like you can make us pay attention. Um, and so it's, it's, I think mostly it's just a different design process. Um, a lot of the things about it are similar. Uh, but it, it's, it's, it's like the, it's been the argument film audio versus game audio, uh, for a long time. It's just kind of moving into the next level of that.
1: Well, now what? What about the the concept of just implementation in a game engine mm. um, versus what you're doing for VR cinematics?
5: So, um, let's get this a little closer. A lot of what we're using in the game engines uh, well, it can be similar. Um, so, one thing that the the game engines do uh, for the spatializing plugins is they can give you a room, uh, and that can calculate the uh, reflections and, and reverb and such such as that. Um, but you like you're still using some of the same tools. It's tracking the azimuth, it's the pitch, yaw, roll, and all that uh, for the head tracking and then moving uh, the audio around accordingly. Uh, Like Two Big Ears has their Spatializer plugin, or well I guess now it's the Oculus Audio uh, that you can use in uh, Pro Tools as well as in Unity. And they do pretty much the same thing. Um, It's just that with games you have to keep track of individual objects as game objects as physical objects that are moving around the world rather than just is my audio panned one direction or
1: another. Great and well video games have been using reactive reverberation zones and roll-off curves to model the sound of changing environments now for a long time. I mean that's been a process of, uh, of game sound design. How is this different in cinematic VR? And what kind of reverb plugins have any of you guys worked with and had the most success with?
5: Well, I can just say in in cinematic VR, I feel like you have more minute control um, over the experience. You know, in in games, it's based on where the player is. Now, you can have a lot of control over what happens when the player is in certain areas, but you never know where they're going to be. In VR, you know in advance where they're going to be. You don't know where they're going to be looking unless you try and construct the narrative that way but in terms of moving through different spaces you can really hone in and um, craft that sound
1: and Kevin any experience working with different reverb plugins you've had the most success with in VR space
3: yeah so something that is of an amazing opportunity for us on on both sides of the spectrum right now is the fact that we have tools that do exist on both ends of the spectrum so you know, we utilize certain plugins in the traditional Pro Tools post world, and now we have the ability to host those same plugins in the game engine world. Uh, we've been doing that with reverb for a while now, and now we're doing with the actual spatial binaural renders. And so the cool thing is, is like I can have a Pro Tools session, I can take a sound, and I can route it through reverb, and I can route it through the Oculus Spatializer plugin, and my sound designer and hear a reasonable approximation of what that's going to sound like when it's zipping by you and Dopplering in the game engine, which is amazing from a sound design perspective. Because what we used to do, and what we've been doing until the very recent past, is we design a lot of assets in one format that we've been monitoring in one set of headphones or speakers, and then we're throwing those assets over the fence to someone who's going to implement that into a game engine for a dynamic playback. And that's totally their domain and we've given them the assets and we're happy and we've fulfilled our contract and great, you know, everyone's happy, but we don't actually know how that's going to translate, we don't even know if the creative intent of those individual sounds is going to translate into the game engine, now we have the ability to monitor that in our DAW, we have the ability to simulate that, so I can have a designer who says, okay, I'm going to design this in Pro Tools or Reaper or whatever, I'm going to put that in Unity, I'm going to put that in Unreal. And I know that dynamically, when that plays back based on user interaction, like, yeah, that's how I wanted that that gunshot whiz by to work. That's how I wanted that you know creature roar to work. And it's spatialized in a place with room sil- simulation, with a custom convolution impulse response that I've recorded in a real space that exists in my digital audio workstation that also can exist in my game engine. So. Well something that we're really passionate about is we want to design and edit and mix in our linear workstations, and we want that to represent what happens at the dynamic playback for the interactive systems. And we're starting to approach that sort of singularity right now with the Oculus spatializer, with uh, some of the audioEs and McDSP plugins existing both in the the DAWs and in the game engines. Like we want to hear what it's going to sound like for the end user. And that's how we've been mixing for films, but now we can mix for games in a way that we never have been before. Um, So designing sounds for these totally dynamic, random, unpredictable, you know, playback experiences is totally awesome.
1: So that's great because the next question up here was what software do you foresee becoming industry standard for VR audio? So who, who asked that question, by the way, just out of curiosity, because I'd love it if you could be a little more specific Nobody wants to cop to it? Uh, oh, OK. Well, so I'm going to tee this one up to you, since you obviously would love your software to become the yeah. industry standard. <laughs> but clearly, there's quite a few now that are vying you know, in terms of spatializers, in terms of the ability to create three-dimensional um, audio panning capabilities. So talk about why you know, your company would potentially be that software tool.
2: Yeah, so I, I I obviously have a bias on which software I think will become the industry standard. Um, I'm very confident in in our technology, mostly because we've designed it from the ground up with a lot of the concerns that were just listed about like how, how accurate is the mixing engineer's experience versus the listener's experience. And trying to narrow that gap to as small as possible is a really important thing for helping mixing engineers get the right mix. So what we've done, we've taken this into account a couple different ways, but Um, Right now, sort of the upload platform that we've been focusing on and distribution platform we've been focusing on is the YouTube 360. That's sort of been the most recent big announcement. It's pretty exciting that such a large platform is now supporting spatial audio. So when we do an ambisonics mix, you can actually choose to use the HRTFs that YouTube is using to decode your ambisonics audio so that the way you're hearing it is exactly how it's going to sound on YouTube. It's not going to be different. And so that helps people a lot with getting the right idea. Um, we also feel that since we support almost every single format of audio that you could give it, um, and then can still take that and mix it down into either ambisonics or motion track binaural, which is our format, um, you you basically have the ability to, to work with anything. I mean, it, it doesn't matter what you get from the, the field engineers, you you can use it to to make a, a compelling 360 mix. Um, we also leverage Motion Track binaural, which is which is our patented format, and that's really the only um, the reason we believe in that format is because it's basically the the best uh, three sixty binaural format out there. I mean, you can work with um, Ambisonics, and and we love Ambisonics because it is it is sort of the origin of so many different ideas in spatial audio. But Ambisonics, at its core, the original patents all focused on speaker reproduction, and we've always from the start been focused on headphone reproduction. So. As a platform, that most likely, unless it's, um, I'm very excited to see sort of communal VR experiences take off. But for now, while VR is sort of a very private thing, and headphones tend to be the the main way in which people are experiencing it, um, we believe that binaural and motion track binaural is the best way to present that to your listener.
5: Yeah. Well, even in just as a side note, even in communal VR, you can't have an individual experience and then have a bunch of speakers everywhere because whose perspective are you going to use to run all the speakers? So it it just seems like headphones are just going to be the way to do it unless you're just doing individual stuff with like a home Atmos setup. But, you know, not many people are going to have that. It's not communal (laughs) at that point. Yeah, exactly.
1: So uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about the render process and how do you actually preview your mix, pre-render, and know that it's going to translate specifically to the different formats that are out there now, the delivery formats?
2: Right. So the, the two sort of field formats that we would focus on. So at the, at the, end, of the, at the end of the entire rendering pre, uh, pipeline, if you want to work with a 360 mix, you're, you're going to have to render into some 360 field format. And so we, we have our format, the MTB, and then there's Amazonics, which is the other format. So Amazonics right now, um, only is supported in B format. So that's that's um, four channels, you know, W, which is everything, and then X, Y, and Z. And so that four-channel format is what is being used by YouTube right now. So we will allow you to work in that pipeline so that you can experience that and, and have the same um, output and, and all that that's going to be used by other systems. But yeah, right now, I mean, basically everything on the market is some variation on a multi-channel binaural, like what we have, or a ambisonics field. And that's that's it. I, I mean, those are the two ways that you're basically going to see people take spatialized audio. And it's some variation of those two. So um, depending on sort of which which companies take off and, and whose who's private format, now that the ambisonics patents have kind of all expired, it's it's sort of an open field. And that's when we see a lot of other microphone manufacturers coming in with their own version of, like, the Tetra or the Core Sound or, or these basically right exactly the ambio things of that nature so that's that's sort of where you see those coming into that space those are still based on the same concept of spherical harmonics and ambisonics so
1: and so can you mention anything about uh, dolby atmos playback in terms of
2: any of these formats right so so the dolby atmos format is is kind of an interesting uh, out, outlier to this because it's it's working in this it's object based concept where you're basically sort of rendering to a, a a giant list I guess and then at real time it's rendering it to some some idea. So at at the end of the day when it when it does get rendered it is going into something similar to ambisonics or binaural depending on the playback idea. But the way that the actual audio data is encoded is different. So amb right exactly object based. So amb- you know binaural and ambisonics are both just just sound. It's just a, a raw sound file that you play all the way through, like the way that you would put a CD into a CD player, and it would play all the way through, and that's it. That's done. The, the Atmos is interesting because it's basically like this, this if you put a CD in and it said, all right, now play this part at this time, play this part at this time, play this part at this time, and, and this time ex- exactly right. Exactly right. So it works off of this, this concept of metadata. But at the end of the day, when it does all sort of get how, it, how they actually render the sound so that you believe that it's coming from a certain direction does play off all of those Amazonics concepts.
1: Um, so just, we're, we're almost at the end of our time here, but I think it's really important to touch on the concept of, since so much of this is designed and geared towards headphone playback, and headphones can vary dramatically in terms of their EQ curves, in terms of how the the mix will get interpreted, so how do we deal with that, because I, I've, I've I've been having problems with that. I mean, a client's gonna walk out and go, sounds great in, in the studio, and it sounded great in the headphones that you were using, but man, when we took it back and played it on those Beats headphones,
3: it sounded terrible.
1: So how, how do we, Kevin, what's your experience with managing that?
3: So the our biggest you know, concern has always been authoring for the end user experience. So if I'm targeting the Gear VR platform, I'm going to test my mix on a Gear VR. I'm actually going to hear it on a device played back on the headset. I'm going to test a couple different headphones. I'm going to test in-ear versus closed versus open-backed headphones. Like I've said before, if you're targeting Oculus Survive, you should definitely ch- check on the headphones that ship with that device. Uh, man, if iOS was way hipper with VR, we should test on Apple earbuds, but that's not relevant quite yet.
1: Um, what what about the concept of personalized HRTF?
3: Oh man, that that would be ideal. Uh-huh. But the fact that a high quality customized HRTF profile is such a edge case for the typical end user, I think the current arms race that we're really looking at is all of the different tech manufacturers who have some sort of binaural re-render, whether you're looking at quad binaural or your ambisonic or something like Dolby Atmos where it's more than two channels of audio, if you're going to deliver for a headphone mix, you are going to be downmixing, mixing, re-rendering, whatever you wanna call it. You wanna have an algorithm that is least likely to be problematic for your end users. And I've talked to people who are literally HRTF immune, like people who hear binaural audio and it either doesn't work or it sounds bad. So this is a huge technical challenge right now whereas in stereo audio we've been doing it for music and film and whatever for many years we know sort of how stereo is going to translate to the end user. Binaural right now everyone is taking a slightly different approach and some people are using existing math and some people are, you know, customizing the math to their own needs. But the idea is that we want everyone to have a good experience. To have the optimal experience, yes, it needs to be customized for you. But that's like saying, well, yeah, you know, to see things, if you need glasses, you want to have the right prescription. I mean, what that's I right. envision someday is that when I put on a VR headset, like I log into my cloud account and it customizes my optics and my audio setup based on my profile. Uh-huh. Like I would love to just like drop into the Apple Store, like a Best Buy, for like 15 minutes and get my like HRTF and my. Prescription oh, that's what—that's exactly
1: what the guys at Vivasonics have been talking about. But. Doing.
3: until that's a reality like until we can sort of have that data portable with us and accessible anywhere i think what we need to remember is that we want this to be accessible to everyone and if you're focusing on a technology that has these really problematic edge cases like you're 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 creating the opportunity for some people to have a suboptimal experience and so really like you have to monitor through whatever your playback render is so if you're If your target platform is YouTube 360, try to monitor through a system that is going to emulate what the YouTube 360 algorithms are. And like, man, that sucks. If you're a mixer and you're immune to those renderers, and like the spatial audio doesn't work for you, but tough. Like you have to know that's how that's how everyone's going to hear it. Um, You can't pick a totally different HRTF profile so that it sounds good to you, knowing that the platform is going to use a different algorithm. So, well,
1: well, what about like the AUSIC headphones that claim to have sensors that can automatically calibrate the headphones uh, to your ears for personalized audio? Um, do you think that's really possible? Have you have you heard those? Has anybody listened to those? By the way, anybody had a chance to listen to those? They're they're pretty amazing, right? So, is is there a chance that 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 kind of headphone becomes a stand, a standard?
3: Yeah, any degree of customization is going to be better than no customization at all, unless of course the end user does it wrong. But that being said, especially with the binaural audio, the more specific we can get to the user, whether it's, like I said, customizing the interpupillary distance for the headset that you're using or customizing your HRTF profile, the more specific you can get to the end user, the more ideal their experience is going to be. And so I would love to see both software and hardware tackle this issue. I don't think one side can tackle it alone. I think everyone is going to have to think about how do we get this content to play back for everyone and how do we figure out how to bring those outliers in so that no one is immune to the immersiveness of the content of the storytelling that we want to have. And we have to figure out how to target those people. That's the high bar, right? So whether it's OSIC with hardware that customizes or it's a software plugin that allows the user to have some customizable selections, you know, we have to start thinking about those things like, OK, yeah, now we've brought it to the masses, but the masses is really sort of your average consumer. Let's bring it to everyone. And I think there's a lot of big challenges there, software and hardware, that you know we have a high bar to hit.
1: We're only at the beginning. <laughs> so uh, we, we're out of time here. Uh, I want to thank all of the panelists tonight who contributed to this conversation and made this possible.
0: Thanks so much for tuning in to this exclusive sound panel hosted by Pyramine. You can hear more conversations with sound designers, composers, and directors on the soundworks collection podcast on iTunes and streaming online at soundworkscollection.com. Thanks again to our sponsor road microphones for sponsoring this podcast series, providing premium audio products at an accessible price, enabling people from around the world to achieve their creative goals with mics for studio, video recording, and podcasting. You're bound to find the mic you need to find out more. Visit Road.com.